Welcome back to Sunday School. Hope you all had a wonderful celebration of our Lord's resurrection last week. It's good to be back with you. We're continuing our study of the book of Acts. We're about in the middle of it. This book is a, uh, a great illustration of many of the other New Testament truths and commands. We see basically gospel truth in action. We see the Great Commission in action. And it's been a pleasure looking at this book together with you. Last time we met, we looked together at Paul's first missionary journey. If you remember, Paul's first missionary journey was primarily to two regions. First, the island of Cyprus, and then Galatia, or central Anatolia. What did Paul do on his first missionary journey? He preached the gospel. He did some miracles, but primarily it was preaching the gospel. And what were the results of that first missionary journey? Well, many believed, but Paul and Barnabas, his ministry partner, they suffered persecution in nearly every city in which they preached. In today's lesson, we're going to look at Paul's second missionary journey. That's our title, Paul's Second Journey. Our agenda is going to be a little different from last time. Rather than examining the full biblical text that describes Paul's missionary journey, we're going to overview the missionary journey and then zero in on just one stop in Paul's missionary journey. We're going to look in detail at Paul's ministry in the city of Philippi. Let's pray before we go on. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain this well, God. It is a, a wonderful passage. There's so much that we could say, but God, I pray that you would help me to uh, focus on what would be most profitable, help me to be able to explain that part well and accurately. And I pray that you would move the hearts of the people today to become more sanctified. They, they would have, they would see more of your heart, God, for the lost, and they would have more of that heart, more of a heart that is so willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. Not merely because it's some kind of duty, but because uh, that is your way. That is your heart. I pray that you'd be with your people now and build them up in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, please open your Bibles to the Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is where we're jumping into the narrative. One thing we're not really going to talk about, but you should know about that happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 15, is the Jerusalem Council. I alluded to it a little bit in my previous Sunday school classes, but... After the first missionary journey, it's not too long until we have the rise of the Judaizers. You may have heard that term before, but it refers to a group of Jewish Christians who insisted that Gentiles needed to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. In particular, they needed to be circumcised. Now, this is something that had already been dealt with with Peter's visit to Cornelius, but somehow it stayed alive and it began to spread throughout the regions that Paul had even ministered to. These Judaizers were going around even to Galatia and telling the Gentiles, you can't be saved unless you keep the Jewish law. That's actually why Paul writes his letter to the Galatians. It's a right around the time of the Jerusalem Council that Paul writes his first letter that is recorded in our New Testament, the letter to the Galatians. But when those Judaizers came to Antioch, they caused such a dissension that it was determined to form a council in Jerusalem to settle this question once and for all. What is required of the Gentiles to be saved? And you won't be surprised at the answer because it's the same thing that uh, Jerusalem, the leaders there, acknowledged after Peter's ministry to Cornelius, that Gentiles are saved by faith, just as the Jews are. And therefore, it makes no sense to require them to keep the Jewish ritual law including circumcision. A council did say that Gentiles should be sensitive to, uh, should be considerate to Jewish sensibilities, but there is no requirement to keep the Jewish law. And Paul and Barnabas, they returned with that decision from the council to Antioch, and they would be keen to share that declaration with the, minister, the, the cities that they had previously ministered in. So that all happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 15. We're going to pick up right near the end of Acts chapter 15, where we see the impetus to go on a second missionary journey. So look at Acts 15, verses 36 to 40. 
This will be the first bit of text we look at, just a small section here. Follow along with me. Acts 15, verses 36 to 40. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city on which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. I notice a few things about these verses briefly. First, we see the goal, or at least the initial goal, of this second missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas want to revisit the cities that they went to in their first journey. But the trip immediately hits a snag over the issue of whether to take John Mark. Barnabas wants to take Mark, Paul does not. And the disagreement gets so sharp that the two teachers actually decide to separate. Barnabas takes Mark to Cyprus, which was uh, Barnabas's home country. And Paul takes on a new ministry partner, a man named Silas, who came from Jerusalem. He was one of the leaders there. He actually came back with Paul uh, from the Jerusalem council. And these two men are commended by the brethren in Antioch, and then they depart. Now, where do Paul and Silas, who's also called Silvanus, where do Paul and Silas go? Now, this is where we overview the second missionary journey. I'll show you a map here, and we're going to talk through it. Ta-da! There's our map. This The description of this journey appears from Acts chapter 16, verse 1, all the way to Acts chapter 18, verse 22. Paul and Silas are going to be starting over here. You might see my little mouse here. I'm going to be starting over here in Antioch in Syria. By the way, that's ancient Syria. Antioch is actually in modern Turkey today. A little bit surprising. But they start in Antioch in Syria, and they go over land this time. They go north from Antioch, and they first strengthen the churches in Syria and Cilicia, probably passing through Tarsus. Now, this is not a section that Paul and Barnabas went through in their first missionary journey. So these churches were either established by someone else, or they were established by Paul when he was ministering in Damascus and Tarsus before Barnabas and he linked up in Antioch. But this is where they first go through, pass through Syria and Cilicia, and then make their way back into Galatia, where indeed they had been in their first missionary journey. So cities like Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and even Antioch and Pisidia. And while in one of those cities, in Lystra, Paul picks up another ministry partner, a young Christian named Timothy. He was half Jewish by his mother and half Gentile by his father. Paul sees him as useful to ministry. He circumcises Timothy, and then they go together to the rest of the work. The trio then passes through Galatia, that's this section here, passes through Galatia, but once they reach Antioch and Pisidia, rather than going home, having accomplished essentially their initial stated goal, they decide to continue and foray into new territory for Jesus' sake. But curiously, as they begin to pass through this region here, Asia, so all the way on the west side of Anatolia, the Spirit specifically forbids them from entering the region to preach the gospel. They're not allowed to do so in Asia. And when they try to go in Bithynia, this section here, Bithynia and Pontius, they're also forbidden by the Spirit to go and preach there. Now, why? Why would the Holy Spirit prevent gospel ministry in these areas? I mean, shouldn't all the earth know the gospel of Christ? Well, we see something very important in verses 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 16. So, Look at those verses. It has something to do with why they're forbidden. Acts 16, verses 9 and 10. It says, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding, God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
ah, so there's a reason. There's a reason they've been diverted from these other areas, and it's because there's an urgent need in Macedonia. And seeing themselves called by God to go to that area, that is where they decide to go. They had been skirting through Asia and uh, the border of Asia and Bithynia. They had made their way all the way to Troas on the northwest coast of Anatolia, and that's where Paul has this vision. You may have noticed, though, in verse 10, there's a switch in the pronoun. It says, we, we sought to go to Macedonia. What does the we indicate? Yeah, Dwayne. Sorry, I'm not um, hearing, hearing you very well. Uh, I'm not sure if there's uh, something going on with this sound. Actually, I was wondering why I wasn't hearing very much at all. So maybe we can get that uh, worked on. But uh, hopefully you said, maybe you said that this we is a, this is an inclusion of the narrator. And our narrator is Luke, the writer Luke. Luke decides to, or Luke joins the ministry team in Troas. You know what, let me just double check that it's not something on my computer that's causing the sound problem. audio real quick. Looks all right online. Okay. Well, we'll see if we can get that figured out, but I will keep going. So Luke joins the team. We've got four ministers now all going together, and they cross the Aegean Sea. Group conducts major ministry, and uh, they cross the Aegean Sea and end up in Macedonia. That's this orange section up here. And their first ministry stop is going to be the city of Philippi. And they're also going to spend major time in Thessalonica and Berea. So all cities in Macedonia. Now many get, come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior as a result of this ministry uh, by, by Paul and his companions. But guess what also appears as Paul and the others minister in these cities? Persecution. In Philippi, Paul's beaten in jail. In Thessalonica, he's forced to flee, as he is in Berea. And it's due to the agitation of the Jews. Silas and Timothy, they end up staying in Berea for a while, as Paul flees to another city, and Luke seems to have stayed behind in Philippi, while the rest of the team moved on. But Paul ends up fleeing from Macedonia to Athens, coming down to this green section here, into Achaia, the province of Achaia. Ends up in Athens, speaking at the marketplace there, also speaking at the Areopagus, which is a rocky outcropping where Athens' leading men would meet for conversation and perhaps some judicial business. And Paul preaches to them. If you remember in Acts 17, what the reaction to Paul's preaching there is, oh, I heard some sound there. I heard somebody cough, so that's a good sign. So hopefully, hopefully I can still hear you. Oh, I couldn't quite hear with that, what someone just said. Okay, there's a cough, though, so that's good. <clears throat> so I don't know, it's like I can hear, but I can't hear. Uh, so Paul preaches in the Areopagus, but it's not a, it's not a super great harvest. There's, a, there's mocking as soon as he starts talking about the resurrection, but some also believe. Paul then leaves Athens and heads to Corinth. So Corinth is right here in the, on this land bridge, this isthmus between mainland Greece and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Corinth was an important trade city sitting on that isthmus. Paul goes there next to minister, and he meets up with two other people you might have heard of, he meets Priscilla and Aquila, and he becomes a tent maker with them, since they literally all shared that trade. Preaches when he has opportunity. Eventually, um, Timothy and Silas meet up with Paul back in Corinth, and Paul switches to full-time preaching. And they stay there a while. They're given express protection from the Lord. God appears to Paul in a vision, tells him he'll be protected in Corinth, and they stay there for a year and six months. And Paul continues to preach and teach along with his companions, and they build up the church there. It's also in Corinth that Paul writes his next two letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, written while Paul is in Corinth. 
Corinth is the last major ministry site in this second missionary journey. After the year and six months, Paul decides he wants to head back to Jerusalem. He makes a pit stop with Priscilla and Aquila to the city of Ephesus, which is here on the coast of Asia, right over here. He does go to the city synagogue there and preach, but when they ask him to stay longer, he says, I can't right now, but I will come back later. Priscilla and Aquila end up staying on in Ephesus, and they later link up with the budding new preacher, Apollos. Paul, Paul meanwhile, heads back to Judea. He um, ends up at the port of Caesarea, and he visits the church in Jerusalem, fulfills a vow there, and then heads his way back to Antioch. And that's Paul's second missionary journey, covering about 3,000 miles over land and sea, so even more than the first missionary journey. And this this trip, this ministry trip, probably took about two to three years. In terms of dating, the Jerusalem Council probably takes place around AD 50, and so this ministry journey would have taken place probably from 50 to 52, or 51 to 53. Like the first missionary journey, the general pattern of Paul in the second is to start in the synagogue, if there is one, in each city, preach to the Jews, and once the Jews clearly reject the message, then focus and preach to the Gentiles. And also, like the first missionary journey, Paul experiences incessant opposition and persecution in the cities he goes to. And it's mostly from the Jews, but sometimes from the Gentiles too. But despite that opposition, Paul saw many men and women be saved, confess belief in Jesus Christ, and become baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So we have now a bird's eye view of Paul's second missionary journey. Kind of keep it straight in your heads. First missionary journey, it's focusing on Cyprus and Galatia. Second missionary journey focuses on Macedonia and Greece. Though there are visits to Cilicia and Galatia, the cities of the first missionary journey as well. So now that we've overviewed where Paul goes in his second missionary journey, let's zero in on one of his ministry stops, the city of Philippi. So look at Acts 16, verses 11 to 40. That's where we find the account of Paul's ministry in Philippi. We're going to take this account in sections, first reading verses 11 to 15. Here's the description of the team's arrival into Philippi. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Okay, just a short section here, but there's, there's a lot to say. Let's first observe. Notice that Philippi is a Roman colony, meaning that it is a highly privileged status in the Roman Empire. It's set up to be a Rome away from Rome and enjoyed extraordinary privileges, such as exemption from taxation. And the inhabitants, the original inhabitants would have been actual Romans, though other Greeks, barbarians, and travelers, and merchants, they would have been part of that city as well. Now notice Paul does not go to the synagogue on the Sabbath in Philippi, but he instead goes to the riverside. Further notice, when he goes there, he doesn't find men, but women who have gathered there. But notice what Paul does. He sits down, and he speaks to those assembled women. And we hear about one of those particular women named Lydia. Now, Lydia is a Gentile name, and she's from a Gentile area. The city is Thyatira, which is actually in the middle of the province of Asia, that area that Paul had been forbidden to go to by the Spirit. 
We hear that she's a seller of purple fabrics, which means she's involved in a very lucrative trade, probably well-to-do herself. And we hear that she is a worshiper of God. That is, she fears Yahweh. She's a Gentile who worships the God of the Jews. But notice what it says happened to her as she listened to Paul. It says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And notice what immediately follows. She and her household are baptized. Well, they are at the river after all. And Paul and Silas see them to be fit to be baptized. And it's not just Lydia, it's her household as well. So they must have come with her to the riverside. Do understand, I'm not sure if I said this before, the household in those days would have consisted of both of children and slaves who were under the control of the head of the household. So these, however many they were, they were also baptized. Now she and her household are baptized, but she also noticed, she also requests that Paul and Silas and those with them, that she might be allowed to give them lodging. Really, request is an understatement. She urges them. She prevails upon them. This is no mere courtesy offer. She's begging them, constraining them. Let me show you hospitality. And they consent. It does remind me a little bit of what Jesus said in Matthew 25, uh, Matthew 25 verses 35 to 40, in his parable of the sheep and the goats. He describes the behavior of the sheep who come and to get to enjoy the Lord forever. And in verse 35, Matthew 25, 35, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And you know how he ends that section in verse 40. Truly, I say to you, the extent that you did, if you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. We see that's what Lydia is doing. I'll step back and interpret. I don't have a separate interpretation slide because we have a bunch of slides to go through today. But some questions to consider based on observations. Why does Paul go to the riverside and not the synagogue on the Sabbath? Yes, it's very likely there wasn't a synagogue. There's a certain rule. Hey, by the way, I can hear you. Yeah, that's nice. There's a certain uh, rule in those times that there had to be at least 10 Jewish men to establish a synagogue. And the fact that, first of all, there, there doesn't seem to be a synagogue or he doesn't go to a synagogue on the Sabbath, but he instead goes to the river and doesn't even find men there, but women suggest that there weren't enough Jews in that city to establish the synagogue. And so Jewish women and God-fearers, they instead met by the riverside. And so Paul's aware of that custom, and he goes there to find Jews to preach to. Now, what is it that Paul spoke about at the riverside? It's not mentioned explicitly in the text, but we can infer. What was he talking about? It's the message of Christ, and it's the gospel. He had to be explaining that Jesus is the Messiah, according to the Old Testament, foretold in the Old Testament. And it is that discussion that causes Lydia to respond. What specifically does the phrase, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the truth spoken by Paul? What does that affirm about salvation? I heard some sounds, but I think you have to speak about extra loud today. Yeah, God's sovereignty and salvation. He is totally sovereign. He's the one that must open the heart. He's the one that must grant repentance. Just as 2 Timothy 2.25 says, God is the one who must grant repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now, God uses means, and we see those means illustrated once again. It's God's messenger bringing the message of the gospel of Christ and explaining it to the people. Now, consider the sovereign orchestration of God to save this one Gentile God-fearer in Philippi, she and her household. God brings this Gentile woman from Thyatira in Asia and a Jewish apostle from Tarsus in Cilicia to the same riverside outside a Roman colony in Macedonia. 
all so that she could be saved. We're beginning to see why Paul and company could not go to Asia or Bithynia. God's Spirit was essentially saying to Paul, you have an important appointment in Philippi that you cannot miss. Therefore, do not tarry in these other regions. Now, am I saying that God orchestrated all this just for the salvation of one woman? Well, in a way, yes. God has that kind of intimate care for his elect, for his children. Everything in the world, everything in Lydia's life was being orchestrated for her ultimate good and salvation in God. Because God, by his grace, by his loving heart, chose to set his covenant love on her. But the thing about God is that he's able to do this same special kind of orchestration for all his elect. He's able to weave the various lives of each one of his children so that no single one of them gets anything less than the absolute best from him. You yourself, you can look at everything in the world and say, this has all been orchestrated for my good, my specific good, not just uh, as one of the members of the church, but me. Can't we affirm this in our own lives? We, I think, can look at forces that would seem rather uh, large and impersonal, things at the local level, national level, even international events that on closer examination appear to have been worked out with our own individual benefit in mind. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever noticed that? This is why we can declare with confidence the same that what Paul declares in Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God in his great wisdom and love is able to do that for every one of his children. He's not just do it for one and say, sorry, you guys get the leftovers. No, he's able to do it for each one. It's amazing. We may not see how all of it's working out right now, but one day we will. One day, God will reveal all the good that he specially orchestrated in the world and in our lives when we see him face to face and say, look, I was doing all of this for you. Not that we deserved it, not at all, but because he's that great. There's no one like our God. Hang on to your question. I want to make sure that we can get through um, all that we need to talk about today. But please don't, don't forget what you had to say. Lydia and her household are not the only ones to be saved in Philippi. We have another providential happening to investigate, and it appears in the rest of our chapter. Let's first look at our next section, verses 16 to 24. Acts 16, or, yeah, Acts 16, verses 16 to 24. There's a shift in the atmosphere of ministry in Philippi. Verse 16. It happened, as this, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, so by the riverside, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief master's streets, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. All right, let's observe this next section. 
So notice that Paul and company are continuing to go and speak at this place of prayer in which they first encountered Lydia. But they gain this unwanted follower, a demon-possessed slave girl. She does declare a true message about Paul and his companions. They are indeed messengers of the Most High God declaring the way of salvation. But Paul becomes very annoyed with her and with the Spirit. For many days she followed them and kept making this announcement to all who were passing by. So Paul soon had enough, and he commanded the demon to depart in the name of Christ. It obeyed, but this upset the girl's masters, who had been using this demon-possessed girl for fortune-telling profit. Now, never mind that they just beheld a man cast out a demon with a word. They seized Paul and Silas, though interestingly, not Luke and Timothy. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them before the local magistrates, and they and notice the charges that are leveled against them before the magistrates. These men are throwing the city into confusion, which was not true. And they're proclaiming unlawful customs. Well, kind of true. Romans were bound to worship and sacrifice to state-sponsored deities, which would be forbidden according to the way of Christ. So that's kind of true. But notice also the contrast presented in their charge. These men being Jews are doing these evil things against us. They're trying to corrupt us, being Romans. We are the Romans, they are the Jews. With these charges brought before the magistrates, the crowd is moved to rage, and the magistrates go right along with them. There's no investigation, no trial, but notice the outcome. Paul and Silas are stripped and beaten with rods, suffering many blows. The jailer then puts them into prison, and not just prison, the inner prison, the place for the worst and most dangerous criminals, and their feet are put into stocks. Now, I originally had a picture of stocks up here, but I think I switched my picture at the last second. What are stocks? Well, you've probably seen something like them before. It's basically a bar of wood with two holes in it, where you stick your legs through and your feet come out the other side, and then it's locked into place. It's a form of punishment that makes your legs mostly immobile. Not only limits your ability to move, but it forces you probably to assume a sitting position that is quite uncomfortable. They're put in the stocks. And that would have greatly limited their ability to escape. That would have made them even more secure in the inner, in the inter, inner dungeon. Not to mention it would have been painful. So what a change of events. These Two messengers of Christ, they just had this wonderful experience seeing Lydia and her household come to Christ. Now their bodies are aching from a beating, they're stuck in the inner prison, and their feet are fastened in stocks. Definitely a low point. Let's consider some interpretation questions again. Why did Paul want to cast out the demon in this slave girl? I mean, wasn't the demon telling the truth? And the repetition may have annoyed him, but we remember see the same thing in Jesus' own ministry. The demons are telling the truth in, during his ministry too, but he keeps casting them out and telling them to be silent. And there's a reason, I think, for both. You don't want a demon to be a witness of God. Because what are demons and Satan? They are liars. They are murderers. They desire no one's good. So if they're proclaiming a true message, it's actually going to defame the truth. By declaring the truth, they actually discredit the truth, or they attempt to. And so this annoys Paul more than the mere repetition, I believe. And so he decides that he's going to cast out the demon. Really, Satan and his, his minions are, are very evil in purpose. They'll even try to take, take a declaration of the truth and try and use it to undermine the gospel. Now, another question. How did the crowd know that Paul and Silas were Jews? They must have been identifiable in some way. Maybe they looked like Jews and they would have stood out in the city. Maybe they dressed differently. But this perhaps may go 
some ways to explain why Luke and Timothy were not seized. Remember, Luke's a Gentile, and Timothy's half-Gentile, so maybe they didn't stand out. And Paul and Silas, these are Jews, and they, they could be easily brought before the magistrates and charged. <clears throat> Notice how easily the magistrates set aside justice to punish Paul and Silas. The, answer might, or the question might be, why? Well, Roman pride was aroused. Anti-Semitism was aroused. And they were also being used, these, these Romans in the city, they were being used as pawns of the evil one. He'll discredit the truth one way by trying to have a demon proclaim it. And now he'll move people to persecute the messengers. So just another manifestation of how the darkness hates the light. The demons, for sure, and even those who are the slaves of Satan, the sons of Satan, yet still in bondage to sin. Well, things sure turn sour for Paul and Silas. How would, how would you be feeling at this point if you were in their situation? Perhaps discouraged, defeated, just wanting to give up and leave? Well, if you know anything about this story, this account, that's not the way it turns out. Let's look at the next section, verses 25 to 34. <clears throat> but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But, call, but Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household, or you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized. He and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. All right, let's observe this section. Notice what Paul and Silas are doing at midnight. They're not complaining. They're not weeping. They're not even just trying to get some sleep. But they're praying and singing hymns of praise to God, not just laments or or prayers for help, they're praising God. And says the other prisoners were listening. Now, certainly singing hymns is not a normal reaction to being beaten and thrown in prison. This, by the way, is Paul's first imprisonment recorded in the scriptures. But it won't be his last. By the way, was the jailer listening to the hymns and prayers? You may have heard part of it, but notice it does say that he awoke from sleep after the earthquake. So he had not heard them specifically at midnight. <clears throat> but notice, indeed, God does send an earthquake, a very special earthquake that just so happens to unfasten every chain and open every door in the prison. So much for securely locking away God's messengers in the prison. The jailer awakes from sleep. He thinks all the prisoners have escaped and he prepares to kill himself. But notice Paul. He cries out with a loud voice to the jailer. The jailer should not harm himself since the prisoners are all still there. You can see that Paul harbors no resentment towards this jailer who stuck them in the stocks, put them in the inner prison. Rather, he shows great care for the jailer's life and his soul. The jailer soon falls in fear before Paul and Silas. He then brings them out and asks them what he must do to be saved. Now, that's a great question. And Paul and Silas give him a great answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus. What's the result? You will be saved. Now, you might be saved. Not you probably will be saved, but you will. And not just you. Who else has the same opportunity to believe and be saved? Your household. All those with you. 
Right after that, Paul and Silas, they speak the word of the Lord with those who are in the jailer's house. And the jailer believes, as does his whole household, all his children and slaves. And notice what the jailer does immediately afterwards. He washes the wounds of Paul and Silas, even in the middle of the night. He, he and his household are immediately baptized. He brings Paul and Silas into his house. He sets food before them. They're probably pretty hungry. And he rejoices greatly. This is not too different from Lydia's response, right? Let's interpret this section. How is it that Paul and Silas were able to sing through their suffering? Is that a hand, Roy? Yeah, that's got to be part of it, right? They knew that they were not suffering in vain, but they were suffering for the one that they love, for their God, their Savior, for Christ. And he's not going to not notice that. He's going to be pleased with that. He's going to reward them for that. They were pleased to suffer for Christ, just as Peter and John were earlier and the other apostles earlier in the book of Acts. They knew there's more reasons that they could have rejoiced. They knew that God was still with them. He wouldn't abandon them. He would ultimately provide good for them. They knew that no trouble could separate them from Christ and his love for them. In short, they continued to have faith in God. It's like the hymn says, God makes the woeful heart to sing. And so they rejoice. Why was the jailer going to kill himself? Right. So if you lose a prisoner in the Roman Empire, it's a capital offense. You will be killed for your negligence. Now, if you lose all your prisoners, then that's just, you know, even worse. So he, he knows he's done for if the prisoners have escaped. And he's just going to spare him whatever brutal torture and death might await him. Just kill himself. But, of course, God intervened. Now, how is it that the jailer knows what question to ask Paul and Silas? What must I do to be saved? We don't know exactly. Could be that he heard Paul and Silas preaching in the city. Could be that he was paying some attention to their prayers and their singing, at least before midnight. It could be that he was simply aware of his own sin and his need for a deliverer from death. Whatever it was, could be a combination of these things, clearly God was preparing this jailer just like he was preparing Lydia for the message of the gospel, for the message of hope in Christ. You see, this jailer, too, was part of the reason that Paul and Silas could not tarry in Asia and Bithynia. This man and his household needed to hear the message of Christ right now. Consider how close this man came to missing out on salvation and going into eternal torment. The sword was literally in his hands to kill himself, to depart into eternity. And it would have been an eternity of hell for him. But God intervened via the voice of Paul and essentially said to this jailer, no, your soul will not go into the fires of hell, but I will save you eternally through my son. Hasn't God done the same thing for you if you are in Christ? He's intervened. Maybe you weren't on the verge of suicide like this man. But certainly you were on the path of self-destruction through your sin and self-righteousness. You were marching steadily toward, or perhaps even charging headlong into, your just punishment of sin in hell. But God reached down. He would not let you follow your own way to destruction. And Jesus instead declared to you, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's what God did. What did you ever do to deserve God's love to you in that way? It's nothing. It's just his own great love at work. 
This is why salvation in Christ is such a great cause for rejoicing, even in the midst of suffering. You see the same thing with this jailer. Now, there's one more section I want us to look at here. This concludes the account of Paul's ministry in Philippi, and it's verses 35 to 40. Let's go ahead and read this last section. Now, when they came, the chief magistrates, or when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul says to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. Policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Let's observe this last bit of text. Notice the secret that Paul now reveals. He and Silas are Roman citizens. Now this fact has not been mentioned anywhere before in the book of Acts. It's like our author, Luke, has kept this detail from us so that we might be just as surprised as the Roman magistrates of Philippi are at this revelation. These magistrates in Philippi would have been shaking in their sandals for the transgression that they in the city had just committed. Being a Roman citizen gave you various legal protections, including the right to a trial for any criminal accusation and freedom from torture. Rome took violations of Roman citizenship very seriously. And punishment on Philippi could have been quite severe, including the loss of colony status, which would basically mean a loss of independence and a whole bunch of taxes. Not to mention the magistrates responsible could be in huge trouble. Now, Paul knows all of this, but he refuses to simply leave the prison. He demands that the city magistrates come themselves to lead Paul and Silas out. Fearful magistrates comply. They keep begging Paul and Silas to leave the city. Paul and Silas will leave when they're ready. Thank you very much. Notice the brethren are gathered at Lydia's house, which probably became the church's first gathering place in Philippi. And Paul and Silas go to Lydia's house, encourage the brethren there, and then depart the city. Now, back to interpretation. Why didn't Paul and Silas say before that they were Roman citizens? I mean, they could have avoided this whole beating and imprisonment and stocks thing. Why didn't they mention it? You might think, well, maybe they didn't have time. Maybe the mob, you know, they're just going so fast, they, they couldn't get a word in. Yeah, it's possible, but I think that's unlikely. I mean, they couldn't have even told the jailer when they were put in prison. And you couldn't simply claim to be a Roman citizen and people be like, oh, no, that's not true. That was a very serious claim if you were if you claim to be a Roman citizen and you weren't. You, could get, you can get in a whole bunch of trouble just for saying that. So it's something that people took very seriously. I don't think that Paul and Silas tried to and just weren't, a, un, weren't able to. This seems to have been a strategic choice. Why would they purposefully not reveal their citizenship until after they'd been unjustly treated? Can you say that again? Say it a little bit more loud, loudly, please. Okay. Um, yeah, it definitely is. It is about the gospel, and in a way, it is setting the stage for the gospel. It is, it is going to help advance and protect that gospel. I think we can describe it in this way. So what, what you're saying is true. By Placing the city and its leadership in the debt of Christians, Paul would likely be able to protect the Christians in Philippi and in that area long term, and as you say, Rob, give more opportunity for the preaching of the gospel. 
not, not exactly blackmail, but he's, he's making it so that the city would fear doing anything to oppress the Christians because they have this unjust act that they committed in the past hanging over their heads. This was really about, as you say, Ron, this is about the gospel. This is about the Christian brethren. So really, we must acknowledge Paul and Silas could have avoided that jail time and beating and their experience in the stocks, but they didn't. And they did it for the good of others. They laid aside their right in order that others might benefit. And this is exactly what Paul says he does all the time. 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. In uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. 1 Corinthians 9, 23, he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. In 1 Corinthians 10, 32 to 33, Paul says, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Now, some of you probably know that later on when Paul's apprehended, he does mention his Roman citizenship. So at that moment, he, he didn't see that the situation was quite the same. He could use that right when he needed to. But he didn't hear because he knew that there was a greater benefit to be had for the gospel and for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul was a man who did not cling to his own rights, but he gave them up freely for the sake of others. Now, who does that today? Who, who so easily lays down his rights? I'll tell you who. A true disciple of Christ does that. And you know why? Because someone else did it first. Jesus himself. You know what Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 8. He tells the Philippians, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but, for, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul and Silas were not being melodramatic, not being vain, not being vindictive when they demanded a personal escort from the magistrates from the jail. They're actually strategically demonstrating their love, demonstrating the love of Christ for their brethren. Now let's think about this experience of the team in Philippi in total. What we really see in Philippi is the love of Christ in action. First, the love of Christ drives Paul and his companions to Paul and his companions to go to a place where the souls are crying out for help, to Macedonia. Then we see the love of Christ in the gospel declaration to Lydia, to the Philippian jailer, to their households. We see the love of Christ also in the joyful responses of these two individuals to the message of Jesus, resulting in a new desire to serve God's people, show hospitality to God's messengers. And all of this being brought about by the great sovereign power and deep love of the one God who is. Now, what difference should all of this make to our lives today? There's a couple questions for you to consider. Let's talk application. First, do you know Christ? The same message that delighted and saved Lydia and the jailer is the one that you need to believe. God is the creator who deserves our worship and obedience. You, if you don't know Christ, are a sinner who has rebelled against God, wanted to live according to your own way, a way that is self-loving, evil, and self-destructive penalty of your sin, according to a good and holy and just God, is eternal torment in hell. But God provided a way of rescue through his son, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah of the Jews, 
who lived a perfect life, died an innocent death, to pay for all the sins that any of those who believed in him would ever do and ever did. He pays for them once and for all, for all those who believe in Jesus Christ with a whole heart. They, just like the just like Lydia and the Philippian jailer, they will know that they are saved because they believed in Jesus. This belief is not merely intellectual. It permeates the heart. It results in a changed life as the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside that person and empowers that person to follow Jesus Christ. So does that describe you? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you have eternal life? If you were to die today, do you know you'd go to be with the Lord? could happen. We keep seeing these stories about mass killings. Why should we be exempt from any of those things? But we have a security, a true security in the Lord, if we have come to believe in him. Second, what is your view toward your own rights? Jesus laid aside his rights as God to save you. He did it out of love. Paul laid aside his rights in order that others might be saved. What about you? Do you complain when people are not respecting your rights? Do you seek vengeance? Do you get depressed? Are you filled with rage? Or do you gladly give up your rights for the sake of love? Do you freely lay aside your prerogatives because you know that Christ is enough for you and he'll take care of you? Are you always nursing grievances against God and against others? You're not giving me what I deserve. Or do you praise God, even in the hard times? Do you remain patient with people because you realize, actually, I'm getting way more good than I ever deserve? And then finally, we could say more, but these are just the three I want to highlight. What is your view toward the lost? Christ is moved to see the lost saved. He has compassion on them, genuine compassion. He wants them to come. He longs for them to come. And Paul had this same compassion. He wanted to see the lost saved. He subordinated everything in his life to see people come to know Jesus Christ. What about you? Do you care to see the lost saved? Do you have compassion on them, seeing them like sheep without a shepherd, not so unlike you until Christ found you? Or have you become calloused to the lost, not really caring whether their souls perish forever or not? Have the pleasures and the cares of this world so clogged your ears that you can no longer hear that soul cry that Paul heard from the man of Macedonia in his dream? Please, please come over and help us. Can you hear that? We know, of course, the task of spreading the gospel is impossible with man, but not with Christ. So do not be discouraged. Pray. Prepare. Talk with others about how you can speak the Lord on Christ's behalf. Read the scriptures. Pray that the Lord provide opportunities. Look for those opportunities. And preach. Preach the truth in love. Be bold. See if even today the Lord might grant another lost soul repentance and eternal life in Christ. Well, that's it for this week. We looked at Paul's first journey. We looked at Paul's second journey. Guess what we're looking at next week? Paul's third journey. I know there are some questions I didn't get to in today's class, so if you still have questions or comments, please email me. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord and God, you, you show your love on display in such great ways in the scriptures, but we see it again and again in the book of Acts. You do desire men to be saved, and you moved Paul, you arranged circumstances to bring Lydia and the jailer and their households and, and others too 
to be saved from destruction and brought into eternal life with you forever. You've done the same thing for us. God, we pray that you would do it for more people. When we, we don't deserve any of this. You are exceedingly good for doing all this. Yet, God, we know that there are so many lost persons that we know, and our friends and among our family and among the people we meet. God, we pray that you would use us to be witnesses, to have compassion, to lay down our rights for their sake and for the sake of our brethren. You've shown us the way already. You've given us another great example in Paul and his companions. Lord, please do the work of sanctification necessary. Rip away the idols that are in our hearts that prevent us from laying down our rights and from loving others genuinely. God, fill us with your love. Fill us with your truth and make us bold and bring a great harvest even through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.